I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this right now. If you love the podcast, please spread the word. Share this episode or your favorite one with one other person. That's all it takes. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, at Pada Bing. And if you're up for it, you can support the show by visiting glow.fm slash If you'd like to participate in the trivia series for a chance to win swag, guest on the pod, or just secure permanent bragging rights, DM at Potabang on Instagram. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is my conversation with Bob Shaw. Bob was the production designer for most of the show, 79 episodes. Bob called in from New Jersey to share his soprano story, his path to production design, his impressions of the show, and special memories. In addition to The Sopranos, Bob has worked on some incredible projects during his career. We touch on some of those, including Glen Gary Glen Ross, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Wolf of Wall Street, The Irishman, and of course, The Many Saints of Newark. I really enjoyed this one. Special thanks to Bob for taking time in between work on a new HBO project to go down memory lane with me. I think you guys will enjoy this one. So here it is, my conversation with Bob Shaw. Bob, thanks for taking time out of your day to do the podcast. Sure. So you were the production designer for most of the show, I think 79 episodes to be exact. For those that may not know, describe your work and the tasks of a production designer. Uh, Well, the task of a production designer is sort of, uh, the first thing is just to figure out where we are. (laughs) You know, when you, when you, uh, you know, watch the show that it's always clear what's going on and, you know, one person's home is distinct from another person's home. And uh, the first thing we would do is get a script and sort of talk about what we thought we would build on a soundstage and then what we would look for uh, in the location. And, um, you know, so my job is either to uh, sort of design and then supervise the building of of the things we decide to do on stage and then to help find the locations and then determine what we're going to do to the locations to make them look more appropriate for the the scene we're doing more authentic um more authentic or just even some sometimes more film friendly Uh, i mean um i always would make a joke on the sopranos that um the art department motto was we go to extraordinary lengths to bring you the ordinary um because uh the sopranos didn't really call for exotic locations and often the less exotic something was the better um and uh I used to call it the train wreck school of design and that uh, elements that didn't seem like they belonged together that you would find together when you went scouting in New Jersey. Mm. Um, I mean, you'd go to an older funeral home and there'd be flock wallpaper and everything uh, was very much almost Victorian looking. And then because somebody needed to, at some point they punched a hole in the wall and they used very basic uh, hollow core uh, you know, door that was sealed, you know, to, with just shellac or something like that. And then they would put like clamshell molding around it. And um, that was sort of the, the soprano 
design ethic in a in a nutshell. Interesting. <laughs> you know, that, you know, if it didn't if it didn't look like it belonged together, it was most likely right. Interesting. You know, the thing with the Sopranos is, and it's a line from the show, it's all about the regularness of life, making it look extremely ordinary. But I love that you went to extraordinary lengths to give us the ordinary, which you did masterfully. How did you get into this kind of work? Strangely enough, uh, my background was that in high school, I was undecided as to whether I was more drawn toward music or art. Um, I was definitely never going to be a scientist. <laughs> but um, I uh, used to play the French horn and they would always give you orchestral excerpts to play. And a lot of times they would give you things to play that were from operas. And I cooked up this idea that if I designed scenery, perhaps for opera and musicals and that sort of thing, that it would combine my interest in music and art. So for whatever reason, I decided that I wanted to design scenery when I was 16 years old. And, and that was my uh the logic that I applied to coming up with that profession. And then I did theater for about 12 years and I did some opera and I did a fair number of musicals. And, um, you know, the, the, the not too hidden secret is that the theater doesn't pay very well. And, um, uh, you know, I used to say I, I was doing well and I had done some Broadway shows when I was pretty young, but, um, I had poverty with the illusion of success. I said, <laughs> because I was just, you know, financially, it was like nowhere. And, you don't really notice until you hit the other side of 30, you know? Sure. Um, you're used to not making any money when you're in your twenties and it seems kind of normal, but, uh, when you're on the other side of 30, you think I'd like to have a bedroom. <laughs> you know, and so I started, uh, working in film and television. You mentioned a guidepost, uh, the script as a guidepost. Are there any other guideposts or tools of the trade for your craft that you use or you apply to all your projects? Well, I mean, we do a lot of research. You know, I was just uh, talking to somebody the other day about what I think of what we do, if it is an art, as a very applied art. Um, you're not dealing with, with a blank canvas. And so you're not really trying to figure out what your particular artistic vision is you know you're you're applying it to you know trying to support you know uh, the show right so um you know you you i mean the script is is where everything comes from and particularly on the sopranos um there are shows where people are encouraged to ad lib and then there are shows where it's like no you you say what is on the page and the sopranos was really a, a show that uh revered the script and, uh, and, and didn't really deviate. Um, so that it, I mean, it is your, 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 your launching point. It is, it is your blueprint. And, um, you know, but you get in, in the case of the Sopranos, there was always information coming from, from David because it was all in his mind. And I mean, I know one example was the character of, uh, Gloria Trillo, the, uh, Mercedes sales person that Tony had, a had an affair with. Mm -hmm. Um, with played by Annabella Sciorra and we all read the script and we said, well, she lives in a condo in Fort Lee in a sort of modern high rise. And we went to talk to Dave and he was like, no, no, she's a strega, you know, which <laughs> is a witch. Right. And she lives in some, you know, kind of cabin in the woods and none of us would have reached that, that conclusion without, without David. Sure. Um, sort of directing us that way. 
So uh, in the case of The Sopranos, there was very strong guiding hand. And we would uh, look at some location folders. We'd do a little scouting. We would uh, pull together some things that we were thinking of. And then we would uh, go down this long corridor to David's office and find out what we got right and 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 what we got wrong. <laughs> Love it. So it wasn't in the script that she had a condo in Fort Lee. You guys just kind of envisioned that. Mm-hmm. I didn't even really say specifically where she lived. It yeah. was just, she seemed quasi-urban. She, sure, sure, yeah. You know, dressed dressed in a very professional manner. She sold Mercedes. Right. And um, it seemed like she was going to be condo all the way. <laughs> and um, and we, we had that wrong. <laughs> so, you know. So how did you become involved with the show in the first place? What do you remember about how it all came together? Well, I uh, knew Eileen Landris, and I, um, uh, she, she was the producer of the show, and we met, um, I think we first met on a Demi Moore, Bruce Willis movie called Mortal Thoughts, and she was the assistant accountant. And then our paths crossed again when she was the accountant on the movie Quiz Show, and I was one of the set designers. And, um, you know, we sort of stayed in touch. And when she had this show, and of course, no one knew what it was going to be. And they knew that the designer who did the pilot was not going to be available to do the show. She brought me in to, to be considered for, for starting the show in season one. Um, but I'd never designed a television show. <laughs> and so um, I didn't get the job. And uh, when they were looking for somebody for sec for the second season. Um, she said to David, um, well, do you want to meet a lot of people? You know, how many people do you want to meet? And he said, what about that guy from New Jersey? <laughs> so I guess, you know, maybe he thought I was okay. And maybe he was concerned that I hadn't done a TV show before, but he did seem to be impressed by the fact that I was from New Jersey. And, um, you know, uh, David was always concerned about the, the show, never lose its sense of jerseyness. And we would often try to save time or in some cases money by uh, filming something in, in, in Queens or something in Brooklyn and saying it was New Jersey because um, our offices were in Queens. It was the craziest thing. We filmed almost everything in New Jersey. We got in the scout van every morning and headed for New Jersey. Um, but our office was in Queens. And, and I think that was just because in, in season one, having no idea that the show was going to be what it became, um, I don't think it made sense for HBO to find a warehouse in New Jersey and turn it into a soundstage for what could have ended up being only a handful of shows. Right. So for the, for the duration, we had this problem of the island of Manhattan being between our offices and uh, and where we did most of our location filming. And bridges and tunnels. So, all that, yep. Um, someone figured out that on the, the, the season of Sopranos, I would spend the equivalent of the month of February in the van. And that was calculating it in 24-hour days. So it was if someone woke me up on the first morning of February and said, Bob, it's time to get in the van. And then they let me out in March. <laughs> so, wow. um, and there were two teams. Um, there were two... Uh, assistant directors and there were two uh directors of photography um but only one production designer and so i was the one who was always in in the van and you know 
I'm sure you might may have come across that Steven Soderbergh said when he claimed he wasn't going to do film anymore, it was because he couldn't stand to be in the van anymore. Yeah, I recall seeing that, hearing that. Yeah, it's hard to even explain the van to people who don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> I've lived in the area and I know enough about getting across the city and just how defeating that can be by itself, let alone having to be in a van and uh, kind of you know on a time schedule and all that stuff. And it's great to hear that New Jersey was sort of the common denominator for getting you on the show. Well, the other thing was having an Italian-American background in that I I always referred to myself as the stealth Italian um, because nobody would ever uh, think that I was part Italian for some reason. I guess I look more like my Irish father, but um, my mother's mother's side, my grandparents were from Italy and they lived in Philadelphia. So when it came time, for example, to we had a scene when Junior was under house arrest and for the first time we were going in his basement and everyone was like, what's in Junior's basement? And it's like, uh, the peppers hanging from the ceiling, the jars of this, you know, the wine m- machine that they don't use anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know, I sort of knew, um, you know, he was, uh, pretty much based on what was in my great uncle Tony's basement. Interesting. That actually, you actually segue beautifully to my next question. As a viewer, are we able to see you in the work like is there anything on screen that is signature bob shaw does that make any sense um it makes sense but i don't think i have a um uh a style okay um, i mean i don't think you know it's not like an architect where you, where you say this person uses a certain kind of vaulted arch I mean, you know, you can say, oh, Mario Calatrava, there are all these fins on everything. And um, you, uh, you know, can say that this, you know, has a certain postmodern look. But, you know, I think you're, you ideally shouldn't have too much of a personal identity when you're, um, when you're production designing. Well put. What episodes that you worked on stand out the most, good or bad? Um... Boy, it's hard for me to even remember at this point because um, everyone used to say that you didn't want to sit next to me at the premiere um, because I was always going, you know, like at things I, you know, didn't like. I mean, I can't remember what they are right now. You know, it's funny because right now, I mean, I, you know, being older and not necessarily wanting to be tied down as long to a series, um, you know, I have a different feeling about it, but I remember doing the first season of the Sopranos and thinking that it was very exciting to uh, be able to go back and, and do a better job the next year, you know, and it's like, there's this list of things that I thought could have been a little better and, um, you know, having the opportunity to try and, and, and get there, uh, was great. One of the things that we perseverate on the podcast about is the attention to detail or, you know, from, my vantage point, the notion that everything that you see in front of you is intentional and there's a thought process and a delicacy to it. So hearing you say that kind of validates it, that, you know, always thinking it could have been a little bit better when, you know, quite frankly, it was is pretty near perfection as far as uh, fans of the show are concerned. Um, you made an appearance in All Due Respect, oh God. the season five finale, uh, my favorite episode in the series, probably besides White Caps. Uh, how did that happen? Well, there were a lot of other people who had done uh, little cameo appearances. Right. Um, Mark Kamein, the location manager, was the, uh, I guess he was the admissions person at the college 
uh, in the episode college, um, Kevin Janicelli, who was one of the, uh, the gaffers, uh, was Dale, Dale Cuercho, who, you know, was a pizza parlor owner. I mean, he must've done well because that character came back. <laughs> yeah. um, Ignaz Provancus was never heard from again. And, um, <laughs> It's funny because the the only, the only other time they had asked me to to read for something was um, the episode where there was some kind of like scoutmaster walking along the uh, waterfront with some kids and said, "You see that? That's a knobbed whelk." And you know, I definitely did not excel at trying to make sense of that. And um, so they said, "Well, why don't you come in and read for the architect?" And it's like, okay, and it didn't seem like a big deal to come in and say, these are just preliminary drawings. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, one of the writers said, no, but uh, believe it or not, it wasn't just because it was you, you, you were one of the only people who didn't trip over the phrase, either just preliminary drawings, <laughs> because apparently a lot of people were coming in, these are primitive, you know? So, um, but, uh, I know that when my family saw it, they said, well, you can certainly tell you're not an actor and, don't quit your day job and all of that. And, uh, you know, I think Jim Gandolfini had thought I'd be a little nervous. So when he shook my hand, he sort of, uh, took his finger and like tickled the inside of my palm, I think trying to loosen me up. <laughs> and I made some kind of expression like what? And, um, that was the first take and it was the one they used. Oh, and interesting. The handshake just went on forever. I mean, uh, Terry Winter used to do this thing called the Erkley Awards, which were, you know, just kind of an in-house uh, summing up of the season. And um, I was given the previously not existing award of uh, award of the longest handshake because it just went on forever. <laughs> uh, I got to go know, back and so, look at that when we're done. That's great. Oh, uh, you know, it's uh, it's something that I probably would not have the emotional fortitude to watch. Um, because you know, probably would be embarrassed. Did you watch the show like in its entirety? Are you a f fan? Um, I, I really don't watch most of the things that I work on in their entirety. Okay. Um, because, um, it makes me uncomfortable. Um, uh, and you see what no one else sees. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's, it's a little bit excruciating. And of course, I've usually seen, you know, dailies and a lot of bits and pieces of things before I see the final thing. And, um, no, I can think of it. I, I usually see the pilot episode or the first episode of a season because you end up going to a premiere or something. And, um, that that's often all I've seen of the season. Um, because, uh, you know, I, I don't watch at home. I, I know I, only ever saw the pilot of Boardwalk Empire. I don't think I saw anything more than the pilot of Nurse Jackie. Uh, you know, uh, it's. I guess it's like there's certain people who can't watch themselves if they're actors. I've, you've probably heard some people say that many times, many many times, especially for this project. Um, you worked on the series finale as well. Mm -hmm. Was was work on that show any different compared to the others? Well, it was different because it was the first time David had directed again since the, uh, the pilot. And so I, since I didn't do the pilot, I had never worked with David as a director. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, what can you say about him working with him? Um, 
he's an interesting combination of having very, very specific um, ideas of what something should be, but also listening if you have um, another uh, point of view uh, and, and that it makes sense to him. Um, and there, there, there was definitely a wanting to please David factor doing the, doing the finale, you know? Um, I mean, it's funny cause I, in the, in the final season, which to me, you know, there was a, a very clear theme in the, in the final season and it was, you know, is there something other than this life that we, that we lead this, this thing of ours or whatever you want to call it. Mm. So you had the thing with Tony, you know, in that sort of alternative reality, you know, that he was a traveling salesman, the very beginning of the, um, the first episode, um, a character of Eugene comes to Tony and says that, you know, they inherited some money and he wants out. Of course, he'll give Tony some taste of it, but you know, he basically wants to retire to Florida. And Tony says, there's no way out of this thing of ours. You don't retire. And then he hung himself. And then there was the whole plot line of, uh, of Vito, you know, being gay and then running off to, you know, Dartford, New Hampshire or whatever it was. And then there was the, um, the, uh, episode where, where Carmelo went to France and everyone was like, why are we going to France? Are we going to France? Because David likes France. But for some reason that episode really kind of meant something to me because it was her first time really discovering that there was a world, you know, outside of her world in New Jersey. And there's a scene where she sees a piece of jewelry in a museum in France. And, you know, Rosalie says, are you crying, honey? And she says, we worry so much and everything gets washed away. And, um, you know, for some reason, I thought it was a moment that a lot of people have had. If you travel anywhere and you, you, you realize what a tiny piece of history you are. And, uh, you know, I thought it was, uh, I, I don't know. It meant something to me to see Carmela experience that. And, um, I, I, you know, I guess with the detail. So it was this amazing thing. We're in France. We're scouting in France. You don't really care that you're in the van if you're in France. Sure. And, um, and, um, they're like, well, Hmm, where should she go to the museum? Well, let's go here. Well, maybe Saint Denis. And, you know, I'd been to Paris many times. I'd never gone North to Saint Denis. And then it's like, well, maybe the Louvre. And, um, they're showing us some jewelry. And um, uh, they showed us something that was like in, in the Roman collection. And I said, can I say something? I might be overthinking this, but like if Carmel is going to admire a piece of jewelry, it should be something Christian. It shouldn't be some pagan piece of jewelry. And, and, um, and David said, thank you. Thank you for thinking of that. And, you know, in working with him, those were the moments that you live for. <laughs> you know, I mean, everybody wanted, wanted uh, you know, the approval and wanting to know that they're, that they're working hard to try and get it right. And, um, you know, you, you work on the show and you design the scenery, but you start to feel kind of territorial or pr- proprietary about all of it. You know, you feel like they're your family, they're your characters, you understand them, you know, and, you know, Carmela would be attracted to something that was Christian, you know. 100% accurate, and I love that little story. That's so great. You were the production designer for, I'm segueing away 
kind of away from The Sopranos for a moment. You were the production designer for the pilot of Mad Men, uh, my second favorite show. Um, and my question is, why did it end there? Why did you just do the pilot? Is there a story there? Um, the only story is that um, they were getting ready to start up, and I would have had to leave The Sopranos. Oh, gosh. Uh, so there was to do overlap. It. And, and, and um, Matt and everyone said, you'll figure it out. You can do both. You'll go back and forth. You'll get a good art director. And I said, I'll get a strong art director who will despise me by the time I actually start because I will have left them with all of this. I said, it's not really possible, I think, to do these two things on different coasts. And I went to David and I said, you know, don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to leave. <laughs> and he said, thank you. Thank you. And then he turned around and he said, I mean, but if you feel you need to. And I said, no, I, I, I'm going to see this all the way through, um, particularly with him directing the last episode and yeah. feeling that um, I had had this great experience of working on the show and working with him and never having gotten to work with him as a director um, that I wasn't going to pick up and leave. Loyalty ethos. Of well, the show. I mean, I mean, he definitely, he definitely, you know, um, it, it was earned loyalty, you know? Right. Needless to say, from an outsider's point of view, it's a very good problem to have to be able to go from The Sopranos to Mad Men. It's a trajectory a few people can kind of talk about. But like any pilot, we didn't know, yeah, you know that's that true. it was going to become. Yeah, very true. And I would say to Matt all the time, I said, you know, uh, it's amazing that you've been involved on some level with two things that that have come to define an era or come to define something very specific. People still refer to anything related to, you know, the mob or organized crime as, um, you know, uh, a soprano moment or soprano like, yeah. And, you know, people now refer to a whole period in American history as the mad men era. Um, and, uh, it's kind of amazing to be involved with, with two things like that. We know I did a Broadway show when I was like 23 years old and it was fairly successful. And it was like, at that point, you know, I was pragmatic enough to say, this may be the most successful thing I've worked on in my career. Um, you know, at, at that point, you know, saying I could have peaked at 23. So you, know, you never know. I did an IMDb deep dive on you before we talked, and you've worked on some major features, some of my favorites, certainly some timeless ones. I'm going to say a name, and if you could just say a word or two about that experience or that project. The first one is Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. Uh, that one I felt I was lucky because uh, there was very little work in New York that summer, and it was really the only movie being made, and somehow or other I ended up uh, working on it. And, um, you know, so I was grateful to, to be employed at that time, and I hadn't been working in film for a long time. And it was kind of amazing to be around all those actors. And mm -hmm. that, that Jack Lemmon um, didn't like to go to his... Uh, dressing room you know while they lit the next scene or something like that and he asked if they could have a piano next to the set somewhere and he would just sit down and like like he was playing in a cocktail lounge <laughs> and, um, that was pretty that was a pretty amazing experience die hard with a vengeance long <laughs> I mean, it was on <laughs> i was on that for for a year and you know i um I, I mostly de dealt with the subway. I drew the subway set. And ah. A lot of that would probably be CG today. And it was just over a hundred sheets of full size drafting that I 
you know, did, uh, you know, all, all of it. And, um, I mean, it was, well, it was big. I mean, and it, you know, it was the kind of thing that in New York at the time we didn't get, uh, and New York was nowhere near as busy as it is now. It wasn't busy at all. And they didn't tend to do the big action adventure films in New York. So I wanted to have the experience of working on one of those. And, you know, fortunately on that show that was all about the subway, I was assigned working on the subway, <laughs> you know, we're all about blowing up the subway. Right, right. right yeah. Wolf of Wall Street. Well, you know, I was, it, it, it was, uh, it's at the time it seemed like just a lot. There were a lot of locations and, you know, and, and, um, I'd worked with uh, Marty once before and, you know, this felt different because, you know, on Boardwalk, it was really prepped kind of by a Sopranos crew. It was the location manager from the Sopranos. It was Tim Van Patten. And, you know, it felt like we sort of did our thing and then Marty sort of, you know, folded in and told us, you know, what was right and what things he wanted to change. Um, But uh, this was sort of, first one where it was just me and not any of the familiar backup people around. And, um, I just, uh, I don't think I've ever put more into a show because I was just so determined that I had to succeed there. Um, because, um, I was out of the, uh, out of the Soprano family home. (laughs) You know what I mean? Sure. You, uh, you know, you, you, you feel like there are a lot of people who've, who've got you covered. And, um, you know, I felt a little bit, you know, that it was just me and I had to, had to prove myself, even though I was hardly a kid, you know? Um, but then again, the more you, when you get to know Marty, he's another person that, you know, making him happier or, or pleasing him with a, with a set is, uh, you know, it's just a great, great feeling because he's worked on so many things and he's worked with so many people and so many legendary designers and um, we went into one set and he was sort of arranging some stuff. And I sort of looked in through a window and he turned around and gave me a thumbs up. And it's like, I lived on that for months. <laughs> you know? It's got to be very validating. Yeah. Finally, full circle. I know, and I know this, this is in uh, post-production right now, but the upcoming Many Saints of Newark, what can you say about that? Um, it was, I, I don't know, it was just very satisfying. It was satisfying to go, um, and sort of revisit it. It was, um, but from a completely different direction. And, um, it was, uh, great to work with, with David again, um, in a place where I wasn't afraid of him anymore. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds silly, but like, I don't afraid, but I was like very intimidated by the whole, you know, by the time I came on to Sopranos, the show was already successful and, you know, David was, was very, was very busy, you know, and always had a million things going and you felt like his time was very precious. And, you know, um, it was, um, it, it was, it was a good experience to, to come at it with a, with a different, uh, a different relationship there, I think, or, or to feel like I'd earned some stripes in another, in other arenas, you know, so, you know, like again, even though I'm hardly a kid, you know, I, I felt more like a grown up than I did on the Sopranos. No, I, I I somewhat understand exactly what you're talking about. And were you the obvious choice for the Many Saints? Like, did, were were you part of the early conversations, or was there is there any, any initial origin story to how you became a part of it? 
You know, I don't really know. I know that I was on another project, and when they first called, um, it didn't seem like the timing would work out. And then I was getting those warning signs you get or that feeling that a show was going to um, sort of go down. Right. And I said to my agent, would you ask them if they can wait one week? And, um, you know, I went in and talked to David and Alan Taylor, you know, and I hadn't worked with Alan Taylor since the Mad Men pilot, I don't think. Um, and um, we just sort of were generally talking about things. And it was one of the things where it's like, when I came out, I was like, I don't, I don't know if I feel like I'm doing it or not, <laughs> you know? And um, then in the end I was, and um, it was, uh, it, it was just, it was just a great experience, you know? And um, it's funny, we got into this, it's got, you know, we reached the point at the end of the show where people are, you know, giving each other rap gifts and whatnot. And we had this little discussion. Eileen Landers happened to stop by that day and we're talking about rap gifts and remember that one and remember this one. And, you know, David got into this thing about rap gifts. And I said, you know, David, you know, the show's the gift, <laughs> you know, you know, a t-shirt for having worked on it is not the gift. You know, the show is the gift <laughs> and getting to do it again is the gift. What did he say? You know? Um, he, he just seemed to really appreciate it, you know, um, because, uh, you know, it's been, a, it's a huge thing in my life, you know, and I don't know, talking about Wolf of Wall Street or other projects I've done, you know, I don't think that any of them would have necessarily come my way if I hadn't done The Sopranos, you know? Yeah. So in a way, it's the gift that keeps on giving, you know? And, um, I mean, I don't feel, you know, that like responsible for the show, but I feel like it's nice to feel that you're at least a, a little piece of it. Certainly more than a little piece. I would say One, another thing that we talk about so often on the sh on the podcast is the attention to detail and the, in, in the presentation of the show and the presentation of the show is as, you know, is, is what makes it so rewatchable because you can tell there's like a, there's a delicacy and an intentionality that, that goes into every frame, every scene, every moment. And this has been a delight. This has been an absolute privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much for oh, thank you. making time. Thank you. Before I let you go, what's what's next on your plate? Um, I'm right now working, and I have to get back to working on um, this uh, project called The Gilded Age for HBO, um, which is uh, being written by Julian Fellows, and it's New York in 1882. Wow. Um, sort of the, the uh, old money, the new money, and um, one of the uh, times in the history, when, uh, our history of this country when the divide between the haves and the have nots became, you know, wider than it had ever been, you know. Sounds fascinating. When is it coming out or when is it supposed to? Oh, it, it probably won't be out until sometime in 2021, you know. It's like the Irishman doesn't come out until November or something. Yeah. We wrapped that well over a year ago. So these things seem to take longer to come, to come out sometimes. I guess unless you're working through, you know, Steven Soderbergh and it comes out the next day. I don't know. <laughs> Well, again, anyway. Bob, thank you so much. Continued sure. success. <laughs> thank you.